Believe it or not, you've all seen the world's tallest mountain firsthand. Our text this morning, this first Sunday morning of the season of Advent, is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning that we might once again see the mountain of God. Bless us to see it, to live in the light of it, and to rejoice, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was looking at some buttes in Utah with their intense reds and oranges, fantastical flat-topped mountains that are stunning in the late afternoon sun. But below them were piles of ugly gray gravel that the wind and the rain had chipped off. One day, the storms will have chipped away the last of their beauty as they disappear into nothing, for these mountains are shrinking. But the Bible describes a mountain that is always growing and the one that will last forever. And this morning, we will look at the advent of the mountain. The advent of the mountain. Go and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to begin there in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it says there in Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, in order to get the context of this, is very important. These were the waning days of Israel. Isaiah is prophesying to the remnants of the kingdom of Israel. By this point in time, the northern ten tribes have gone into exile in Assyria. And Judah, this kingdom that was once fairly large, is now reduced down into the small city-state in the region surrounding Jerusalem. Greatly reduced and judgment and exile are inevitable for Judah. They will not repent shortly. In a few decades, they will be carried off into captivity in Babylon. Going on to verse 2. So in this context of this, this word of God comes to Isaiah. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, because of the timing on this and the way this is worded concerning latter days, this promise, this prophecy is not for Judah in the days of Isaiah, but it's something in the future. It's concerning latter days. And notice what it says here. The mountain of the house of the Lord. The mountain of the house of the Lord. If you read this and you heard the mountain of the house of the Lord, what would you think of? You would think of Jerusalem, a mountain city. You would think of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in particular. Jerusalem, a city on a mountain that has the house of God in their midst. The mountain of the house of the Lord, but notice how Isaiah words this, not just a high mountain, but the highest of the mountains, says the Lord, the highest of the mountains, the highest of all the mountains, the highest mountain there ever will be. So what about Mount Zion? It's on a mountain. It's kind of a small mountain. Actually, Mount Zion, really technically it's Mount Moriah and Mount Zion together, on one end of this complex would have been the temple, and on the other end of the complex would have been the king's palace. But Mount Moriah is a little lower than Mount Zion, and so over time, 
the idea of the temple of God on a mountain was subsumed up into the higher peak of Mount Zion, but Mount Zion is at about 2,500 feet above sea level. Not a very high mountain, but the mountain that's spoken of here with the house of the Lord upon it in Isaiah chapter 2 is the highest of the high mountains. The mountain of the house of the Lord, super high, and all the nations will flow into it. What is this talking about? Well, friends, I think this is a really cool text because Scripture interprets Scripture. And as you go through the flow of Scripture, through the exile, and you come into the midst of the exile in Babylon, and you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego carried off as young Jewish men who then become advisors to the king in the midst of this exile in Babylon. And we see in the days of Daniel that the interpretation for this text arises in the most unexpected of ways. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of the Babylonian Empire, has a dream, and it disturbs him greatly. He sees this, this great statue. It's got a gold head. It's got silver going down through the chest, bronze, and then iron, and then feet of clay and iron. He sees this vision, and something happens to that statue, and he doesn't understand it, and his wise men can't interpret it. But Daniel can. Daniel can. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. If you've got a Bible, you might want to go there, because this is awesome. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34, it says, As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. So we have a stone. We've got a rock. Cut without human hands. The cascades into the statue, breaking it in pieces. Verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. The stone, cut not with human hands, comes and crashes into the statue which is representing the great empires of old. Going down from Babylon, going through the Persians, going through the Greeks and the Romans, and the stone crushes that statue. It becomes like dust, and it blows away like it never was. And now here's where it gets interesting. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A huge mountain. A high mountain. A mountain of mountains that fills the entire earth. Sound familiar? Friends, I submit to you that that's the mountain that is spoken of here in Isaiah chapter 2. The highest of the mountains shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And what happened? A rock, a stone cut not with human hands, crushed the statue and became this giant mountain. Who is the rock? Jesus is. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the great mountain, the great temple, the cornerstone of the mountain that is to come. The first advent of Jesus is the advent of, as well of his body, the body of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the new temple, the new mountain. We'll access it a little further here as we go along. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3 in the first part. And many peoples shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, 
that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. The first advent of Jesus means many peoples will go up to the mountain of the Lord. Think about that for a minute. Many peoples will go up to the mountain of the Lord. And the way the text is worded is that, in essence, the nations will come to the mountain of the Lord. They will go up to the mountain of the Lord. And think about how this has happened historically. The Jews went, the faithful Jews went. The Old Testament saints flowing into the flow of the river of the faithful Jews of the New Testament era, following in the footsteps of the apostles. And then the Greeks and Romans came, and they came up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. And not long after that, in the 5th century, the Sudanese and the Ethiopians went up to the mountain of the Lord. And the Goths came in the 6th century and went up to the mountain house of the Lord. In the 10th century, the Norse Vikings went up to the mountain house of the Lord. The Slavs came. The Chinese came in the 9th century. The Delaware tribe came. The Koreans, the Nigerians, and today, Muslim Iranians are going up to the mountain of the house of the Lord and joining in with the people of God. And on and on it will go until the final advent of Jesus and the nations will be fully gathered in to the mountain house of the Lord. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Second part of verse 3. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now we're going to pull this all together. Maybe you're thinking before, okay, that sounds cool. I think you're uh, not pulling those strands tight enough on the mountain house of the Lord. Out of Zion will go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and break this down. What is Zion and what is Jerusalem? It's the point of this text, as some dispensationalists would say, that we've got to focus our eyes on the physical land of Israel, or is there something more? Well, I think, friends, the New Testament is clear on this. First of all, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This is talking to Christians. This is talking to you and I down through the centuries. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Kids, you're priests to God. You're stones in the living stone. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What is Zion, friends? It's the church. It's the body of Christ. The motif of the physical mountain in Israel and Jerusalem, where the temple resided, was actually the shadow. It was the type of the reality of what we are. We are Zion. And what about the idea of Jerusalem? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, says the writer to Hebrews, to Christian Jews and through them to us. This is for us. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, we are the new Jerusalem. We are the new Mount Zion. Us together with 
all the saints through the centuries and our brothers and sisters all across the world. A mighty mountain of living stones. The law goes forth from Zion and the word from Jerusalem. Think about that for a minute. Think about the context in Isaiah chapter 2 and its fullness in being unfolded before our very eyes in the new covenant. The law goes forth from Zion and the word from Jerusalem. The law goes forth from us. The word goes out from us out to the ends of the world. And this has been happening since the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going on to verse 4 in the first part, Isaiah chapter 2. He shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. The word of God through this age between the advents, if you look at it, it's pretty clear, is increasingly deciding disputes in this age. There are ups and downs, but pagan cultures with their pagan laws don't exist anymore except in small pockets. Where the Christian gospel has gone, what has happened? The laws of those lands have been supplanted and subsumed up into the law of God, even in its imperfections. And we may scoff and we may look at our land and say how bad things are. And yet our laws undergirding still are now, this very day, based upon the law of God and the word of God. Since the first advent, biblical principles have been taking over the world we are cynical and ungrateful people as we stand and look at the things that God has done. And we shouldn't rest but press on for more equality and liberation of men from being slaves and serfs. Just and merciful laws. Monarchs can no longer just simply kill people on a whim where the gospel goes. Peace treaties and constitutions the world over are based upon the word of God. So that even the United Nations, though corrupt that organization may be, still has a biblical motif, has on it the dove, and it has in its mouth the olive branch, the peace of God, ultimately pointing forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going on to the second part of verse 4, And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. should make our hearts long. Friends, Advent... Oftentimes this gets conflated with Christmas and the incarnation. We spend all of our time looking back upon the first advent of Christ, thinking that's all the season of Advent is about. But Advent, you may notice, is a purple season. It's a penitential season. Why? Because we look back on the first coming of Christ, but we look around us and long for the final coming of Christ. There is still much war and struggle in this age. Our own Defense Department through DARPA is developing frightful weapons, many unmanned without a conscience. Bloodthirsty sects want to pull, pull the world back into its tribal pasts. Wars and killing continue, and we are left longing for the final advent of Jesus and the final advent of the mountain of God, which will cover the whole world. A day will come at the final advent of Jesus when swords are made into plowshares and spears are made into pruning hooks, when tanks and warplanes are made into combines for collecting grain and rifle stocks are made into feasting tables and nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Friends, as Christians, we can have confidence that Jesus will bring this to come to pass one day. 
we're heading there. We're heading there. We're on the road to the final advent. So we look upon that road with longing and rejoicing. Verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I think that's pretty powerful and poignant at the same time. Isaiah encourages the people of God to walk in the light of the Lord. In the sure light of the advent of Messiah and his mountain, they're to walk in the light of the Lord during a dark time. A dark time. Imagine our nation reduced down to, say, the size of a couple counties around Austin. Imagine that you know that the people will not repent and that a great power is coming that's going to come and crush your land, destroy your capital, destroy your temple, and carry you off into exile. But he will be with you in the midst of these things. And what does Isaiah say? O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We must walk in the same and more so. For we live in the day between the advents when the light has broken in. When I was a kid living in Munich, Germany, I used to ride my bicycle out into the Perlocker Forest. And in the middle of the forest, on a flat plain to the south of the city, there suddenly rose a mountain that towered over the forest below. This mountain was actually man-made. Underneath the dirt and the trees and the grass were a bunch of debris, bricks, concrete, timber, the destruction of World War II and it stood as a monument to the worst efforts of humanity. In our text this morning, we have encountered another mountain, a mountain made up of the debris of a world destroyed by sin and rebellion, fallen humanity. But the debris has been redeemed and gloriously repurposed because of the advent of the Son of God, the first true human since the fall, who advented to live, die, and rise again for the life of the world, and this first Sunday morning of Advent we've seen, the advent of the mountain. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to rejoice and long. Rejoice in the establishment of the mountain house of the Lord, but to long for its full and final fulfillment. May we live in that and may we spread that news to our neighbors, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.